We're going to get started here with this morning's message. Uh, we are continuing, and of course, uh, in our final week of, or third week of Advent, um, and I have the privilege to be speaking on the heart of Christmas, and specifically the heart of the Holy Spirit with the Christmas story. The heart of the Holy Spirit with the Christmas story. Just going to reset my timer here. Um, for the last two weeks, Glenn has walked us through the heart of Christmas as we look at the beginning of creation and what God, God's heart was from the foundations of the world being a, a triune God, a God that had been uh, pre-existing, having been there forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he walked us through the first two weeks of Advent, looking at the overarching heart of God being that the world may come to know Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that those who believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. So today's message, the heart of the Holy Spirit, is nothing different. Because the Holy Spirit is, of course, God himself. He is part of the Trinity. And I know the last couple of weeks we have had a couple of things said here about God being one. One God. We're a monotheistic faith. But manifesting himself in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, it's a, it's a mystery. It's something that is... Uh, not really, we're not able to explain that with whatever kind of metaphor and analogy we, we want to use. It always falls short of this mystery of who God is. And so this morning, I'm going to specifically look at then how the Holy Spirit is part of that mystery. Because many times and with many uh, Christmas carols that we sing, we don't really hear a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to Christmas and what his, um, his desire is. And so uh, I, uh, I just want to say you're in for a treat. Uh, I have the record here at the Rock Church of having the longest introduction. I think this morning is going to be the longest conclusion. Okay, you're in for a treat because it's going to be the, sh the shortest introduction to my message. And then we'll see how it goes. But I'm going to ask that you turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. We're going to look at the Christmas story, but not the, the birth of Christ, but uh, the conception of Jesus Christ. As we have it according to the physician, Luke. And so keep that in the back of your mind, that the person who is telling us this story is a physician. Someone who knows the science. It's someone who follows the science. We've heard that over the last number of years. We follow the science. So listen to how physician Luke, who followed the science and biology, records this interaction between Mary and the angel Gabriel. I'm going to read to us from the ESV. <clears throat> In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. 
And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's the word of the Lord. Let's just uh, pray before we get started. Yeah, Father God, we just thank you once again for this morning. Father, we thank you for this season that we can be in. And we thank you for the joy of Christmas and the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And we just welcome you this morning. We welcome your spirit. We thank you for your presence. And we just come and ask, Lord, come and lead us. Come and speak to us. Come and teach us. Lord, may the words of, the, of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be found pleasing in your sight. Come and take away anything that is not of you. But Lord, come and multiply your work and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book entitled Miracles, uh, C.S. Lewis, who is the well-known author of various books, including, uh, including Chronicles of Narnia and, and that whole series, um, he writes about this issue of the miraculous, this issue of whether miracles are possible, and if they are possible, are they plausible or probable, rather. And he makes the comment in that book that neither experience or historical data is going to convince anyone of a miracle. In other words, where the supernatural intervenes and overrides what is naturally expected to happen, the natural law. But, but no experience or historical data is going to convince anyone if it is indeed not at all probable for that miracle, if there is some probability. Because he explains it, he says, listen, if someone didn't have a view and believed in the eternal soul before or after an encounter with the supernatural, let's say, for example, seeing a ghost. Let's say someone had such an encounter. They believe they saw a ghost. He says that 
always afterwards, that person might be able to explain it away by saying, yeah, you know, I think my mind played a trick on me. Or I think there's a natural explanation to it. I think there's something else to this. I don't think it was really a ghost. Even though it was an experience that in that moment it felt like, and it seemed like, listen, this is a supernatural, paranormal kind of like thing that happened. But what C.S. Lewis says is, if we move from the place of where we believe that, okay, miracles are possible, and they are not entirely improbable, but it's very probable that it can happen, then the evidence, the historical evidence, will be conclusive. That will have to lead us to a place of actually then dealing with the historicity of that miraculous or supposed miraculous event. C.S. Lewis also says that one of the big problems that skeptics have, of course, with this issue of miracles, and especially when it comes to the Christmas story, and as it relates to the virgin birth or the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ, is that many people look back at the ancients of old, thousands of years ago, and they say, well, Surely the people had to make sense of things in this way. They, they didn't have science that explained to them why things happened. So C.S. Lewis says that looking back at the Bible, looking back at the creation story and all of those stories, the miraculous interventions, it's just not possible. The people had to believe that because they didn't understand science. They were not as caught up as we are today. But he also says that the issue is this naturalistic worldview that is not only present in unbelievers' lives, but has also influenced the church. It's influenced the lives of believers. Suppose the believers that in actual fact then are atheistic in how they view what God can do. What is really possible by the power of God? Now, Glenn had mentioned this last week, or I think the week before, he was talking about what Satan's plan is for the world. We've got God's plan. God's plan has forever been, before the foundations of the world, to redeem the world after there was fall. There came redemption and restoration. This is the process, and then we will be in Jesus' presence one day. That is God's plan, so that the world will not perish. Satan has the exact opposite plan. His plan is to have as many people as possible not believe in the work of God through Jesus Christ so that they will spend eternity in hell with him. That's plan A. I want to suggest to you this, sometimes for him, even just the better plan, plan B, or maybe equal, that the church, believers in Jesus Christ, will sit with a naturalistic worldview in their lives and not expect any miraculous work of God in their lives or in the church or in the world. And he's satisfied with that because that leads to a church and that leads to people gathering once a week, sitting in the pews, listening to a message, but the rest of their lives really does not look any different than the rest of the world. He is satisfied with that too. 
so that's the tension there that I want to leave with you in my introduction and then propose to you today's message of what is then the heart of the Holy Spirit and how does this answer this conundrum, this issue that we have with the miraculous and this plan that Satan has, that he wants to come and steal, kill, and to destroy. So this morning's message title is Nothing is Impossible for God. And uh, I'm going to share with us what I see from the text, three ways that the Holy Spirit wants to do the impossible in our lives, the same way that he worked in the life of Mary. By breathing new life, giving power, and through multiplication. So if you know me, you know Rudy's heart is evangelistic. I want to share Jesus with the world. Uh, If you're visiting here this morning, I'm one of those guys that will make you feel very uncomfortable. But don't worry, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. (laughs) He will comfort you this morning. So just hold tight, you're going to be okay. I also just forgot, Jeff, can you just look for that little uh, zapper, that thing with the red beam? At the end of uh, the message, I need to show something on the screen. If you can just try and find it in the meantime. Okay, so here we go. Let's unpack this. First point, breathing new life. Breathing new life. Let's look at it. Luke chapter 1. I'm not going to deal with the whole section that I read just now. That's to give us context. But let's have a look at there from verse 30 to 33. It says there, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. A couple of things I just quickly want to highlight here. It's first of all, the angel Gabriel doesn't come to Mary and says, listen, Mary, well done. You have worked so hard. You have been fasting and praying. You have kept your life pure. You're a virgin, um, which was kind of like normal for teenagers in those days to be virgins. Okay? But he doesn't come and say, hey, listen, so well done. You have, you have earned the righteousness of God so that God can actually do a miraculous power in you. No, this is God's predestined plan. This is something that had been prophesied 700 years before this event through the prophet Isaiah that this will be a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son. So this is God's preordained plan for the world that a virgin, a young lady, will conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. I make that point because it is... God's undeserved favor upon us, not because she is so good or special. And it's the same undeserved favor called grace that is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. It is nothing you can work for. You cannot be good enough. You will never be good enough. Whereas all the other world religions will tell you, well, it's about your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds so that you can maybe one day stand in a place called heaven or you're in nirvana or you're reincarnated not into a worm or a butterfly, but actually maybe something else. You know, Christianity is the only faith that gives you the opposite view of like, no, you don't become a Christian because you are the one who's following God or you're the one who's pursuing God or you have chosen God. No, God chose you. 
If you are here this morning and you're seeking out God, you're thinking about spirituality and Christianity, it's not as a result of you doing that out of your own strength. It means the Spirit of God is already at work in you, birthing and doing something miraculous. Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. So we've got to understand that off the bat, that it's by God's grace that Mary is chosen. It's by God's grace that anyone else can be chosen by God, predestined to be a child of God. Second thing I want to highlight to us here is, look at Mary's response. Talking about knowing the science and this supposed argument that, hey, the people of old just didn't know science. <laughs> Well, Mary is a teenage lady. This is a supernatural encounter. I don't know how tall this angel is. I don't know how buff he is. I don't know what, if he's got wings or whatever he has. I don't know what the last time is you saw an angel. But if an angel came and told me, Rudy, you will conceive a son. He is the son of the Most High. I'm going to be like, I'm a man, but I believe it because you're an angel. Ah, okay. You got to understand my reaction would be, yes, and amen, and I'm on the floor. Uh, Mary sees this angel, and her response is, I know the science. I know I've not laid with a man. How is this possible? And so skeptics that say, hey, listen, the people of old just didn't know how things work. This is just proving totally that that's not true. They knew how things work. They also had a naturalistic worldview and influence in their lives. But I find that perplexing that she is encountering this angel and her response is, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about this. But later on, we do see what her response is. Now, this whole scenario is kind of like reminds us, reminds us of the start of creation. If I can point you to Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's talking about that creation story of how God, out of nothing, took dust, formed man, and then whoosh, breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, the ruach. That's the Hebrew word for the spirit. The breath of life is breathed into it. And, and so this story, this message is reminiscent of that as of like God is going to do a miraculous power where there was nothing, where there was a womb that was basically empty and not able to produce life. God is breathing life. There was this understanding that the Holy Spirit was involved in that creation story, of course. Not just the Father and the Son. Job 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives life. And so it's the same story again. It's the same picture again that this is the Holy Spirit that is involved. The Holy Spirit is doing this miraculous work in the life, or wants to do it in Mary. But it also reminds us of then afterwards, after Jesus is born and he's now in his ministry, he's preaching and teaching, doing miracles in John 3. He has this encounter with another clever guy called Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Jesus encounters Nicodemus and Nicodemus says, listen, we know you're of God because your teachings 
You know, it's so powerful. It, it cannot be from man. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like a silly question, right? Like he knows. Like it doesn't make sense. He's this philosopher, this clever religious guy that knows the creation story, has been teaching it. How can you be born again? Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, so you're washed clean from your sins and the spirit gives birth to your spirit and makes you alive again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, whatever man tries to conjure up and work out, it's just going to produce flesh. But whatever is birthed by the spirit of God, that is true life. There's the connection with the Christmas story and with Mary's encounter here with the angel Gabriel. It's something that is very connected with the creation story from beginning of ages, but even progressing forward in Jesus' ministry. That is a miraculous power that God wants to do, not just in Mary's life to bring forth the Son of God, but also after that, the heart is that those who trust in Jesus will be born again. And God is the one who does the miraculous work. It's not out of your own work. Okay. The second way I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do the impossible is through power, giving power. It says there in Luke 1 verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Again, back to the creation story. Genesis 1 verses 1 to 2. This notion, this idea of overshadowing power comes from Genesis where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is an expectancy of God through His Holy Spirit going to do something miraculous, turning something that is empty and void, there's no life, into life. And it's this picture that we see in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 that it's like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. That is how God is described there in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. This description that Gabriel gives Mary of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her by his power is again a description of the creation story and who God is, an overshadowing power. And then again, not just only for Mary, not just only in that time or in the past, but in Acts 1, chapter 1, this is after Jesus has now been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He's been with his disciples and many others for 40 days. He's been teaching them. He encourages them then before he ascends into heaven in Acts 1 verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
the Holy Spirit's heart for Christmas is that not only that you will receive new life, new birth, that your spirit will be made alive. And now I'm a Christian. I'm happy. I'm coming to church every Sunday. I'm sitting in the pews. But no, it is that it will move you in a specific direction as a result of the power of God. The same power that conceived this miracle in Mary is the same power that is at work in each and every one who believes in Jesus Christ. That is the promise we see through Scripture. Which leads us to our third and final point of how I believe and how it's the Holy Spirit's heart to do the impossible in us and through us in this Christmas time. And it's the one that excites me the most. Multiplication. Multiplication. Luke 1 verse 36. And behold your relative Elizabeth, old aunt of Mary. We don't know how old she is. In her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has call, was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Isn't it fascinating? The angel could have showed up and God's plan could have just been like, Hey, you're going to have a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, miraculous power. He's going to go forth, be the son of God, be the Messiah, save the world. Bam, that's it. That's the promise. But for some reason, the angel gives her another promise and kind of like a double whammy, a multiplying sign that, hey, listen, this is of God. Your aunt, who is very old, and that would have struck a chord with her. She knows that the ancients of, of the past, such as Abraham and Sarah, were extremely old when they had their miraculous conception of Isaac. And then there's the story of Samuel, right? Samuel's mother, Rebecca also. She was barren, pleading the Lord for a baby, miraculous power. So she will immediately relate the story of her aunt and uncle who have now struggled for how many years to have a baby. And the angel says, by the way, your aunt, yeah, she's super old, but she's already pregnant for six months. Talk about gender reveal. Eh? This is who he is. Supernaturally telling her this. And this is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who was going to go forth in the power of Elijah, spirit of Elijah, to go forth to prepare the way of Jesus Christ. A multiplication ministry plan. One guy goes, he's the greatest prophet ever, according to Jesus, in that, at that point. He prepares the way for Jesus. Jesus is baptized by him. Jesus is then led by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days, comes back, starts his ministry, and then John the Baptist is killed, and then Jesus is killed too. It rises from the dead. But the, what is the implication of those ministries? What, what happened? Well, firstly, I want to take us back again to the creation story of where this idea of multiplication originates from. Genesis 1, verse 27 to 28. And God said to them, this is now mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was God's plan from the beginning, that mankind would multiply, that they would duplicate themselves, that they would enjoy life, and they would be God's image bearers on earth. It is where we get Matthew 28 verse 19 from. Our mission and vision as a church is to make Jesus known here in Squamish through making disciples who go and make disciples. Matthew 28 verse 19, Jesus said, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is the end result of this? What is the end result of John the Baptist's ministry coupled with Jesus' ministry, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and the Holy Spirit that is poured out? Well, if you go and read Acts 1, 2, and 3, Holy Spirit is poured out, gospel is preached. The church explodes from 120 people to 3,000 within a day or two, within a week. That, that word power in the Greek is dynamis. It's where we get dynamite from. Because when the Holy Spirit gets involved, it's dynamite. Okay? We see the church then grow and explode even more. But Acts 9 verse 31, I was reminded of, of this verse this week. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up or being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Both in fear of the Lord, awe and reverence of God through the word of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I hope you feel comforted here this morning because now it's going to get interesting here with a super long conclusion. Because here we go. Because now the question is, so what, Rudy? So what? Great. This is the heart of the Holy Spirit with Christmas. We get it. New birth, power, multiplication. Yeah, we hear this so many Sundays. Well, we got a, we got a good Go and put flesh to this. Did you find that little thingy? Oh, please, man. Okay. <laughs> I, I needed to, to illustrate something here. I hope that laser works. Okay, I'm going to throw on the screen there for you a quick uh, table. Let's see. Yeah, it works. Okay. There we go. Addition versus multiplication discipleship. <laughs> right. Look at this. <laughs> In... Column one, you've got years one, two, three, four, five. Okay, and then we jump here 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Let's say, look at addition. Let's say uh, someone is a super evangelist, or let's say the church in Squamish, man. We, we make 365 disciples in a year. In other words, we lead 365 people to Jesus. We disciple them in one year, and we do that every year, and we add up the amount of years and we multiply it by 365. If we just add 365 people every year, by year 15, we'll sit with 5,500 new believers in Jesus, disciples. Not bad, right? Okay, not bad. Hi, but look at multiplication. Look at this strategy. And this is, of course, just math. This is not, you know, just, just thinking about exponential laws of math. I'm not a mathematician, but I just know the stuff works, right? Um, but throw in the Holy Spirit's power, and think about the possibilities. But if, if Rudy led one other person to Christ, and I discipled that person, okay, by end of year one, we will be two. But if we do the same thing again next year, I lead another person to Christ, and he leads another person to Christ, you've got four. And then here it kicks in, and you will see it looks slow, and then by year 11, 
Whoa, whoa. Year 13, year 15, <whistles> almost 33,000 people. Now, let's bring this home. Next one, please. Squamish. Hey, I'm casting a bit of vision for 2024. Squamish, a beautiful place. What a place, right? What a place to live. Mountains, rocks we can climb, mountain biking, the sound. Oh, it's such comfort here. Oh, listen, we got a problem in Squamish. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. Look at this pie chart. Hey, that base is in the way. I don't know if you know what these figures represent here. 70% is the largest piece of the pie. Anyone have an idea of what that represents? According to research done in 2021, 70% of Squamish say that they are irreligious. 70%. According to that census, 26% said that they were Christian. 4% said they're part of or have other faiths. Now, let's break down those numbers. Told you this was going to be a great conclusion, right? Next one. Squamish has got roughly 24,000 people. If those stats are correct, 70% equals 16,800 people that are irreligious. So they're either agnostic, atheistic, or just not interested, just indifferent. 26%, which I feel is a gracious amount of people, and I've spoken to church leaders here. Yeah, that's not true. 6,300 people, Christians. A more realistic picture is going to be like 4.16%, 1,000 people, and even that sounds a little bit gracious because we've been gathering as a an evangelistic church in Squamish the last number of weeks uh, months at the Baptist church for worship gatherings I can tell you we have not been a thousand people we have not been 500 people I would say conservatively let's make it 500 people who are devoted followers of Jesus no let's make it they come to church that doesn't even mean that they are devoted followers of Jesus Christ what are the implications of if that's true let's say we have got 500 folks next one now, this is where it gets really, really exciting. I've got the years 2024, 25, 26 to 29. If we had 500 disciples here in Squamish, 500 people who love Jesus, who believe in Jesus, they trust Jesus, they obey Jesus, they want to make disciples like Jesus, they're full of the Holy Spirit. By 2024, if they go and they do multiplication and just every person Reach and teach one person, lead them, disciple them, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. By end of 2024, we will have a thousand people. Next one, 2025, 2000, 2026, Lydia, you can go. 2027, 8000, 2028, 16,000, 2029. Not just Squamish. We're reaching Whistler, we're reaching Pemberton, we're reaching Lytton, Lillooet. We're reaching the Sun Coast. What, what is that called again? <laughs> okay. What is the big idea? So what? Well, <clears throat> I'm sorry if you came for a very cozy, comfy Christmas message today. I'm trying to paint a realistic picture of where we're at. We are one of the most least reached areas in not just Canada, but in the world. There are thousands of people in Squamish 
that are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit to do a miraculous work in them. We cannot do it for them. And we, first and foremost, need a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We cannot do it ourselves. You can go and say, I'm going to multiply, I'm going to do this because the math says it's going to work. Listen, if it's not of the Holy Spirit, it will not happen. I don't know where you are at, if you have a relationship with Jesus or if you are in the church and what your relationship with Christ is like. The only thing I want to encourage us with here today is not that we run from here and be like, oh yeah, I've got to spread the gospel, I've got to share the good news. Look at Mary's response. Luke 1 verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. She responds with faith. She says, I am at the Lord's disposal. Do with me what you want. That is the heart of the Holy Spirit in Christmas. The heart of the Holy Spirit is for us to say, Lord, do with me what you want. Let it be as a, in accordance with your word. If you have promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit, I believe it. I want to receive him. And I want to encourage you, today is your opportunity. If you do not know Jesus, if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you have not repented of your sin, as we move into communion, this is your opportunity to say, Jesus, come and cleanse me of my sin. Come and forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my pride. And become a Christian today. For those of us who are Christians, it's an opportunity for us to say, Lord, come and do a new work in me. Come and pour new wine. Come and give me a new wineskin. I need to break out of this old way of thinking. Come and break open rivers of living water. Jesus promised that, that those who believed in him, rivers of living water will flow from him. And let's trust for the miraculous. If that is you today, as we're going to partake in communion, let's do business with the Lord. And I also want to invite you to really respond with the humility that Mary does in those areas that you truly are trusting for a miracle from God. Such an encouraging story of how God can do the impossible. Trust God for that miracle and ask Him this morning.